Amen. Boy, you can't help but uh, sing what we've sung this morning and uh, just rejoice in your heart to know that Christ is alive. We believe these things, right? This is our confession as a church, as God's people. And ironically enough, um, as you're opening your copy of the Scriptures, and I encourage you to find your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this morning we're going to look at verses 13 through 18. Ironically enough, as we've sung so much about the life that is promised in Christ, there are many who are in this world today who don't believe in life after death. I read an article a little while ago where a cosmologist, not cosmetologist, but a guy that studies physics, and he's a professor at the California Institute of Technology, Dr. Sean Carroll, he believes he's put the debate surrounding the afterlife to bed after extensively studying the laws of physics. He states that the laws of physics underlying everyday life are completely understood. And everything happens within the realm of possibility. He says for there to be an afterlife, consciousness would need to be something that's entirely separated from our physical body, which it is not. Rather, he says, consciousness at the very basic level is a series of atoms and electrons which essentially give us our mind. The laws of the universe do not allow these particles to operate after our physical demise and therefore claims that some form of consciousness persists persist after our bodies die and decay into their constituent atoms, face one huge, insuperable obstacle. The laws of physics underlying everyday life are completely understood. And there's no way within those laws to allow for the information stored in our brains to persist after we die. This is a really profound statement. He goes on to say later in the article that once we get over any reluctance to face reality on this issue, we can get down to the much more interesting questions of how human beings and consciousness really work. This morning we're looking at a text of Scripture that could not be any further from the statements made by this professor. It stands in a clear word that this is a lie. This this thought that life after death does not exist. I believe the Scriptures state very clearly that life after death does exist. And yet this belief that we only live once is not new. Which is why we shouldn't be surprised to see that those who hold to such an opinion of life have such a strong desire to do one of two things. Either to live with reckless abandon or to freeze themselves with cryonics and to somehow preserve life. Because after all, this is the only one you've got. But is that the opinion that should be held by Christians? In fact, how should we understand death? Because it will come to us all. Last week in our study through 1 Thessalonians, 
uh, at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 12, we, we saw how the gospel is to shape the church's ethics. That as blood-bought people, we are to live lives that please the Lord. In particular, Paul highlighted uh, several Christian ethics that needed to be pressed into and lived out. One, our sexuality. And he urged the Christians to keep their bodies under control and understand sexuality as a gift from God in the context of marriage between one man and one woman for life. But he also spoke about the ethic of Christian love and brotherly love and that that would automatically lead to hard work on the part of the members of the church so that they wouldn't become a burden to others in the church. And so we were to take care, uh, loving one another was seen as we worked diligently and provided and met the needs of our families. Well, in today's passage, Paul shifts from Christian ethics to answer a question that I think the Thessalonians had set back to Paul when, with Timothy. And so, Timothy arrives, and he tells Paul the report of the church. They're doing well. They're loving one another. They're holding fast to the faith. They've not let persecution or opposition to the gospel, even the personal attacks that they're facing, turn them away from Christ. But they do have a couple questions. And one of them is this. What happens when Christians die? You know, we're looking forward to the return of Christ. Paul, you told us he was coming soon. He would be coming in the clouds. There would be a glorious illumination of Christ. And all that are his will be drawn to him. And he will come to judge the earth. And he will ultimately and completely set up his kingdom. And we are waiting for that. But he hasn't come and now we're seeing our brothers and sisters die. What happens now? Will the dead miss out on his glorious moment? I mean, they're dead, so they won't see Jesus in all his glory coming. Do they miss out on just that moment? Would they be at another disadvantage somehow? Or perhaps because they died before he returned, they are lost forever. These are real questions that would hit the heart of any young Christian who's just being taught these things months prior, and they believe them, as we sang this morning, that Christ is the resurrection hope for us all, and yet they're seeing brothers and sisters in the Lord die. So what Paul does is he addresses these fears head on in this passage. And what I want us to see this morning is how the gospel and understanding of that Apostles' Creed, that summation of who God is and who Christ is and man's need for the Spirit to come and bring about a regeneration of faith and the forgiveness of sins through Christ's finished work on the cross and His complete resurrection from the dead. How that gospel should inspire the church to live and die. Verse 13, we see Paul says Christians have hope. And he does this from the negative. He starts with the negative in order to teach and reinforce the positive. And then in verses 14 through 15, he explains why Christians should have hope. And he takes the truth of what we believe, the bedrock of our faith as Christians. We believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. That is essential to the Christian faith. In fact, I would go so far as to say there is no such thing as a Christian faith that denies the death, 
the physical death and the physical resurrection of Christ. So Paul explains why we believe this truth, why we have this hope in verses 14 through 17. And then simply, verse 18 is so explanatory, self-explanatory, that any of us can get the point. Encourage one another with these words. Keep reminding yourself of these truths. So let's work through the text and let's see how the gospel should inspire the church. Christians have hope. As I said, Paul starts with the negative. Let's read the passage in its entirety. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Lord, we simply ask that your Spirit would convince us of this truth, a truth that gives hope, and that you would meet us where we are this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians have hope. Looking at verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We need to understand what Paul refers to in the word grieve. And let's just be very frank. If you've lost someone that you know and love, would you raise your hand? Look around for a second. See all the hands in the air? Okay. Is Paul saying that Christians do not feel the loss of a loved one like unbelievers do? Or that Christians ought not to feel the loss of a loved one as unbelievers do? Is he saying shame on you if you shed a tear? Is this like the Old Testament when Aaron's sons offered the strange fire before the Lord and they were burned up because of God's holy law that declared, you only bring this kind of incense to my temple or to the tabernacle. That's the only one that's allowed, and they used a different one. And he told Aaron and his brother and his, Aaron's other sons that survived, don't shed a tear for them or else you will be defiled by their sin. Is, is that what Paul's referring to, that Christians are supposed to like suck it up and be just iron people, have no hearts, no compassion? I mean, we certainly can't believe that's true because he just applauded the church for demonstrating brotherly love for one another. Is Paul saying that Christians are not to mourn and grieve death like non-Christians? Well, I think the answer is found in Paul's attachment of hope to the teaching that he had given, 
right? I don't want you to be uninformed. Remember what I, we had taught you. You don't grieve as others do who have no hope. And the qualifier is hope, or should I say the lack of hope. In that short phrase, those who have no hope, Paul is making a distinction between two groups of people, not two kinds of grief. I'm going to say that again. Paul is making the distinction between people who have hope and people who have no hope. He is not making a distinction between two kinds of grief. It is right and right and right to mourn. The Christian's understanding of hope is this. It is our confidence that we will experience the kingdom of God personally someday. Physically someday. The unbeliever doesn't have this hope, regardless of whether they're like Dr. Carroll, who doesn't believe it exists because it can't be uh, found and discovered through the quantum field theory, or because the unbeliever has rejected the gospel and dies without a repentance. But the same is not true for the believer. We live and we die with this hope that we will see the kingdom of God. We will see the king coming in all his glory. We have a confidence that we shall see this. And so Paul isn't saying Christians ought to mourn less than unbelievers. What he is saying is that we must keep our understanding and let that shape us. So let's look at verses 14 and 17. Uh, This is explaining how Christians have hope. Because we believe this truth. And what Paul says in verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, ergo... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is what we declared to you before by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And he goes on to speak about the Lord's return, and we will get into that more, the coming day of judgment. It appears that this is another question that they had. When Jesus comes back to judge, what happens to us? What will we experience? Not just a concern for the dead in Christ, missing out on the return of Christ, but what about those of us who are here? I mean, like, isn't this a day of judgment? Isn't this a sobering, scary, terrifying thing? What will happen with us? We'll get to that next week in chapter 5. But Paul is saying, I want you guys to understand something. He is speaking first a word to the living about the dead. The dead will not be left behind. He says this in verse 14. So Christians, we should not grieve thinking the dead in Christ are going to miss out on any of God's blessings because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we should know that God will bring the dead in Christ to himself. One truth follows the other truth. 14a leads to 14b. The first half of verse 14, we believe these things about Jesus, lead to, therefore we will believe these things about ourselves. Because we are united together in Christ. You see how theology is meant to inform our practice? You Think about this. If you're afraid of death, 
and you love the Lord and you are seeing brothers and sisters die, disease, accidents. Maybe it's persecution for the Thessalonians. And, and you're wondering what's going to happen to them. Now, and then that somehow plays into what will happen to you. Now you have where truth is shaping your worldview. And it gives you hope that if even in this life we are taken before Christ's return, we won't miss out. Our theology, and in particular our understanding of the nature and extent of Jesus' death and resurrection, ought to inform our understanding of our own deaths. You see, to be a Christian requires an understanding and belief in the literal death and resurrection of Jesus. Good theology matters, both practically and personally. See what an encouragement this would have been to the Thessalonians, that their loved ones who had died in Christ are not going to miss out on the truth of His coming? What an encouragement it would be. It would help us grieve with a biblically defined hope, a certainty that promises made will be promises kept. And what Paul says is that Jesus is God's divine agent to bring the dead to Himself. It reminds us of what He says would say much later in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul never let this eschatology, this what was going to happen in the end times, leave his speech, leave his writings, leave his understanding. We as Christians would do ourselves a great service by keeping this in front of us. But Paul doesn't just speak to the living about the dead. Notice what he also says. He is speaking to the living about the living in verses 15 and 16. He wants them to know what's going to happen to themselves. And he establishes a fixed point in time when the resurrection of the dead will take place. It is when Jesus returns. That's when the resurrection of the dead will take place. And he bases his teaching on the Lord Jesus' words. Again, Paul is not rooting this in his own little uh, theology or worldview that he's concocted and created in the back corner of some jail somewhere. I know what I can do. This isn't Mein Kampf. This isn't Stalin. This isn't any of those guys. Lenin, in their worldviews, they're, they're, they're coming up with this in their own ideas. Paul says, this is God's Word. At the time Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, if we understand when that Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, was in fact the first book in the New Testament that was recorded, written, That means the Gospels hadn't been written. And maybe what Paul's saying is that this is the very words of God. Maybe what he's referring to is that oral tradition from those who were there when Jesus taught and who heard his words and they memorized it and they repeated it to others. Maybe that's the the teaching that he was referring to, what is later recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. 
Or perhaps Paul is referring to the time where he spent three years between his conversion and his public ministry in Galatians 1, and that was a time of great study of the Scriptures. Maybe God revealed it to him then. Or maybe, in, as in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it was the time when he was caught up to a third heaven and he was given visions and revelations by the Lord. Regardless of the exact point in time that Paul is referring to, what's clear is that God gave him this word. And he uses two present tense participles. We who are alive, we who are left. These are timeless It means that this truth that Paul is speaking to, writing to these Thessalonians, is applicable to them in that day just as it is today and just as it will be to our forebears in the days to come, should the Lord tarry. Any and all who are living and in Christ when he returns can have this confidence. That's the point. And what Paul emphasizes at the end of verse 15 is that those who are living in Christ will have no advantage over the dead in Christ. Those who are dead will be raised to join their living Savior upon His return, and then we will be gathered together with those who are living, and we will meet Him in the air. So the point, the concern of the Thessalonians that the dead in Christ are going to miss out on the blessing of seeing Jesus' return has been dealt with. What will happen to them has been dealt with. When will this happen has been addressed. When Jesus returns, the dead will be raised and the living will be caught up together. So here's what's going to happen next, Christian. And then we get to verse 16. Paul says, I want to speak a word to the living about the dead. Verse 14, verse 15, I want to speak a word about the living to the living. And then he gives a because in the verse 16. I know our ESV translation says the word for there, but I think a better understanding of the flow of Paul's argument would be to say since or because. How do we know that what we see in verses 13 through 15 is actually correct? Because when Jesus returns, and get this, he himself will bodily return. He is going to come with some accompanying signs, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, commentators have no consensus on whether this should be viewed as a ripple effect, three successive events, or whether they all simultaneously happen whether it's three sounds banging off of one another at the same time or it's just describing one sound. Regardless of what Paul meant, the meaning is clear, right? Paul says there will be a command given by Jesus and the dead will answer that. Now figure on that for a while. How can the dead do anything? How I've stood over the tomb of my brother, my sister-in-law. In February, we buried one of the dear sweet saints in our church in Indiana. I have spoken and I've prayed, but the dead have not responded to me. 
How is it that the voice of Christ can speak life into dead people? You want to understand Christianity, you wrestle with that question, and you will see from the Scriptures that Jesus can do this because of, He's of the very nature of God. We sang it this morning. We, we recited it together in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in a triune God, and the Father created all things, and the Son is His power to redeem all things, and the Spirit is the enabling force that fills all things and gives them a, a, a right and accurate picture and understanding of who God is. Tonight, Joel's going to preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12-20, through 20, so you want to come back, because he's going to do all the heavy lifting. I'm not going to steal any of his thunder this morning, but Paul, later in 1 Corinthians, he speaks of the resurrection, and then he answers the questions, how is this possible? What kind of body will they really have in 1 Corinthians 15? And as I said just a moment ago, if 1 Thessalonians is likely the first book to be written in the New Testament, what we see then, if you compare what we've just read here in 1 Thessalonians 4 with what Paul would write many years later in 1 Corinthians 15, we are seeing the earliest theological discussions taking place within the church. How should we control our bodies? How should we understand the dead who die in the Lord and the resurrection? How should we understand our own resurrection if we're alive when the Lord returns? These are some of the most fundamental questions of the faith, and they are seen early in this church. Further, what we also observe between just these two texts is this growing body of teaching on the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection for believers. What, what that means is simply that what was taught in the early church's establishment and fleshed out more over time is so exciting to observe that we are witnessing the development of this glorious doc doctrine that those who die in Christ will be raised because Christ rose from the dead. And those who are alive when Christ returns will also be raised because Christ is alive. It's interesting, though, I don't know if you noticed this, in verse 13, in verse 14, and verse 15, Paul used the word asleep to describe those who had died in Christ. And that's a euphemism that was common in that day across both uh, Jewish culture and the Hellenistic and Roman worlds, to use asleep, someone who's asleep, as a metaphor for someone who has died. So don't overread that. But it's interesting to me, <clears throat> did you notice in verse 16 that he says that Christ died? So I, I had to think about this for a minute. What are we to make of this? Paul says that Jesus died, I'm sorry, that was verse 14, but for believers he uses the metaphor of sleep. Why did he make that distinction? Now, this is just James, okay? You hear me? This is James. This isn't Scripture. This is James trying to wrestle with Scripture and come to an understanding that's helpful and, I hope, true. 
Christ did literally die. He didn't swoon. He didn't go into a coma. He wasn't resuscitated after passing out because of the trauma. He was dead. And yet his death changes things for those who trust in him. Believers can actually face death, a literal death, and view it as rest. Temporary. Kids, I know when mom and dad say it's time to take a nap, it seems like a prison sentence. You're doing life in your room. There'll come a day, I promise you this, I never believed it when my parents threatened me with this, but there will come a day when you will say, please nap, 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 nap. But can you think of this? Paul is saying that this profound truth is is so transforming that even when we've been given the word that you have so much time left, even when death takes one we love so abruptly and unexpectedly, that we can believe with confidence this is just sleep. This is just temporary. Because Christ died for me. That should so change us. That should so comfort us. Through his death, we know that we have been given life. Jesus' resurrection assures us of our own resurrection. Just think of the peace and the comfort this brings to the hearts of those who die in the Lord. Knowing that Through him, their sins are indeed forgiven. They are reconciled to the Creator. They soon shall meet. And then Paul says in verse 17, Those in Christ who are living will be gathered to meet the resurrected believers and Christ himself in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Never a question again about his impulses, his attitude about something. Never a question about... Uh, what His will is for our lives, never a distraction. Never more will we be tired in His presence. We will be with Him. And this too is a comfort to know that we who are in Christ before our deaths will have the same relationship with Him after our resurrection. In fact, it gets better Paul puts it all together as it relates to both the dead and the living at the Lord's return. Christ Jesus will suspend the curse of sin upon this world and physical bodies will be reconstructed, wholly restored, and reunited with the souls of those who died. Simultaneously, as that is taking place, The dead are being resurrected. Those who are alive will be carried up to the clouds and meet Christ together. And all the citizens of the heavenly kingdom will rise to meet their king, never again to be separated from him. Hallelujah. I think of an old song, What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day, what a glorious day that will be. There will be no sorrows there. No more burdens to bear. No more sickness and no more pain. And get this, no more parting over there. 
but forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day. What a glorious day that will be. And so we come to the conclusion of the matter. Paul says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When you fear, you will not see the kingdom as the result of death. Comfort one another by speaking these words to each other. When you have confidence that God keeps His promises, you will have comfort and courage. The psalmist understood this, which is why he was inspired to write, Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. What does this text tell us about the nature of the God who provides redemption? It shows us that He is powerful and He is eternal. It's seen by His his powers displayed as He is able to raise the dead with, with His voice. I mean, think about that. That's the voice that spoke into creation all that exists. Light, show up, boom. Let's separate. Let's create. He just speaks and these things take place. Is it any wonder then that the cry of the Lord will produce life in the dead? This text shows us not only the power of God to raise the dead, as verse 16 said, the dead in Christ will rise, but also His eternality, His enduring, everlasting nature, because we will always be with the Lord, verse 17 says. What does this text tell us about the nature of humanity that requires redemption? Well, it says this. It shows us that a holy God will never experience death, but every sinner will. It shows us the contrast, the chasm between ourselves and God. He is eternal. He's never faded one day in his life. He's not grown weaker. He's not grown fatigued. His ears haven't gotten thickened up. His eyes haven't covered over with cataracts. His strength hasn't abated. He hasn't changed. But we are not like him in that way. And therefore, the God of life must intervene or else the curse of sin would damn us all to a Christless eternity. How is God coming to the rescue? Well, we see from the text, right? Through His Son, Jesus. He sent King Jesus to take on human flesh, to fulfill every bit of God's holy law, and then to give that sinless, righteous life as a sacrifice for sinners to trade his life for mine. He came willingly to a cross where he would ransom himself for every sinner who will hear and receive the gospel. And it's clear from the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians that Paul and his team preached the gospel to them. They heard it and they believed it. God changed their lives. He had transformed these men and women who had once worshipped idols and had done all kinds of things, and he was bringing spiritually dead people to spiritual life in Christ. And yet, unlike 
the scientist that we quoted earlier, the promises of God made that deal with eternal life touches more than just the immaterial world. We're not just spiritually new. It also changes the material world because this text tells us that the material world will be reconstituted at the voice of Christ. There, your body, now I don't know if you're going to have gray hair. I don't know if we're all going to be set in time on the day we died. I don't know what that looks like. It doesn't matter to me because it's going to be made new and it will look great and it will last forever. And so God has the ability to not only mess with the immaterial but with the material He's made it all, and we will experience the perfect wholeness of righteousness in both soul and body for all eternity. So this is how the gospel should inspire the church. I close with these two thoughts. To die with confidence that Jesus himself will raise our physical bodies when he returns for us. What a confidence we all ought to have in this truth. Paul says later, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Spiritually, our souls, that is true. But there is also a day when our physical bodies will be remade. Because he lives, we live. And therefore, Christian, how this gospel truth should inspire us is that we can face any sickness that leads to death, knowing it will not hold us forever. We saw this on Easter Sunday. You remember John 11, that passage of Lazarus, where Jesus raised a man who had been dead for four days? Now think about this. If he could raise a dead man, if he could raise Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, if he can raise the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7, if even the dead can come out of their tombs after his resurrection, according to Matthew 27, then certainly what are we to understand about Jesus? He has the power to raise the dead. And this ought to provide freedom for us, not just as we face our own deaths. For some of us, that may be closer than others. But I think it also should inspire us in a second way. We can live boldly on mission. We can know, practice, and share the message of the gospel boldly. What do we have to be afraid of? If death can't hold us, what's the worst thing that can happen to us? We're not under wrath. We're not under judgment. I mean, think about it. We have absolute freedom to live. What's Piper saying? I mean, just this all-encompassing, consuming Christian hedonism. We can live like this. What does Jesus say? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So every Christian ought to know that we will not experience God's judgment. And because that is true, which we will see next week, we should not be afraid to share the gospel with our classmate, our co-worker, our neighbor, or our friend. Sure, they can embarrass us. We can feel neglected or rejected personally. Sure, they can touch our bodies, but Christ is going to raise those bodies again. They can't touch our soul, and God has provided salvation to us through Christ. So what in the world do we have to be afraid of? What in the world do we need that somehow the gospel living on mission prevents us from achieving? Right? 
Is it going to cost us something? Yeah, it is. We're going to have to get on our knees and pray. We're going to have to get on our feet and start going and telling and sharing. It's going to cost us time and energy, but ultimately, what does it cost us? Nothing. We gain everything. We've been given everything. We who have experienced God's love, forgiveness, and mercy ought to have hearts that are full of gratitude because we know that He is true and we have the hope of heaven. We should not fear anything. These are the words that don't just comfort those that are persecuted in in far-off countries, but these are are words that, that settle deep within the hearts of everyone that's in this room. They ought to be. If they mock or reject us, we still have Christ. If they kill us for the gospel, He will raise us. The hope of glory, the very one who has promised not to judge us, but to raise us to eternal life with Himself, is the promise of God. And so I can't think of any circumstance where the gospel's truth about our future resurrection can't inspire the church to act more like Jesus. These are heavy words, right? But this is a glorious truth. And so as Joel and the the worship team comes up, we're going to sing a great song that speaks to those of us who do believe these words to be true. We can see dark days ahead. We could be going through the valley right now. The valley of the shadow of death. We can be struggling, and yet the reality is this. It is well with our souls. It is well with our souls because we know who Christ is. We believe these things. So if you want to know more about that, I'd be happy to talk with you afterward. I'll be standing right out in the foyer. We'd set a time to meet in the week. We can talk this afternoon. But this is a time for us to soberly reflect on what God is teaching us through His Word and to order our lives around it, to not be moved away from it, but to not let our circumstances somehow crowd out the power and the beauty and the promise of the resurrection of Christ and its meaningful, practical realities for ourselves. Lord, we thank You for the truth that we've heard today. We pray that Your Word would enliven Your people. We thank you that you, you have promised so many good things to us, Lord, and we pray, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.